You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. <laughs> This is the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, a show in which we read books by black authors and they're talked about by a black author. And you can listen if you are black or not black. That is okay. This week on the podcast, we are finishing Vincent Woodward's The Delectable Negro. And I have to say that I'm excited. We're going to finish. We're going to talk about the final uh, chapter, chapter six, give a little overall viewpoint of what we think of the book. Uh, I don't always start these podcasts with a preface. My preface for this was that I wasn't um, the biggest fan of this book. That's the only preface I'll offer. I assume that if you're listening to part six of this podcast, you've probably listened to the other parts of the same book. Otherwise, it would be nonsensical to uh, to just jump in in chapter six. So if you are listening to this podcast for the first time, One, you should go read the book. And two, uh, I mean, you should go listen to the other parts unless you've already read the book and you just wanted to listen to this part. You know what to do. I'm not going to talk about it anymore. All right. The sixth chapter is called uh, The Hungry Hungry Nigger. Hard R. His spelling. Okay. His spelling. I'm doing that, that, um, the Kanye meme where he's talking about what kind of doctor it is. I'm not going to say what kind of doctor it was, right? Anyway, the <laughs> the hungry nigger with the hard R, that's the final time we're going to say it. And from henceforth, we shall be saying the hungry N-word uh, just because uh, the hard R, it's really just never pleasant to hear. Nobody wants to hear that. Um, all right. So, but anyway, this chapter is talking about... Uh, well, let's see. What's the best way that we can possibly summarize the chapter? I've I've written down a couple sentences from the introduction, and so hopefully this will kind of sum up the chapter. Uh, Through the sacred idea and sacred relationship to his anus, Hemphill builds upon a legacy of black people using their bodies and body parts since slavery to reconfigure the precincts of the sacred and the humane. So here he's talking about Sojourner Truth, Ain't I a Woman, how she, uh, and then also he mentions Frederick Douglass. And what Woodard is hoping to do is use the anus as a, um, I gotta say, metaphorical space to uh, dissect the problem with discussing uh, specifically black male interiority. Okay, I think that works. I think that works. And so if I could summarize the chapter in my own words, what I would basically try to say is this. Black people, uh even more specifically black men, but black people in general in America, but, you know, um, kind of worldwide in a lot of places, have historically had difficulty with uh, homosexuality. And in doing so, they have cut off, literally, physically, uh, the interior of themselves, the orifice as a, the black male orifice as a place that could um, be explored, and Woodard is suggesting that we do so metaphorically, and I guess probably also too, literally and physically, but that's not really the point. The point is that the idea that homosexuality is this foreign concept, this, this, um, evil brought upon us by the white man or, uh, a, uh, an offshoot of slavery or a result of the white man trying to emasculate um, the black man, etc. things like this. Um, these are not uncommon ideas. And um, 
if that is if that is if that's how we've been approaching uh homosexuality in the black community we need to stop we need to rethink it and we need to expand our view um and i think that's the basic framework of the chapter in layman's terms okay but so i read one uh sentence which um explains it in in woodard's terms and here's one more that he mentions at the end of the introduction towards the ends of the introduction which i thought were good um uh, He's still talking about Hemphill here, who is tracking an epistemology of the anus rooted in black Christian ideologies and faith practices stemming back to slavery. So I would say that's the other thing is uh, he's trying to reconstruct what the anus can mean um, and uh, pointing out that it has been defined for us by it's black Christian ideologies, also white Christian ideologies and faith practices that stem back to slavery. So hopefully that makes sense. Now I will pause here and say that, uh, I think it's impossible to read the idea of, to read the phrase, the epistemology of the anus or to read the phrase, uh, sacred relationship to his anus and not, um, giggle a bit. And I was thinking before I said this on the podcast, like, is that true because you are a heterosexual man who thinks that the anus is funny and your mind is messed up? And are you exactly what Woodard's talking about? So then I replaced it uh, with vagina. And I think tracking an epistemology of the vagina and um, a sacred relationship with the vagina is also funny. That might also just be misogyny. Uh, a sacred relationship with my penis? Hilarious. So I got to just say that I think that if you have a sacred relationship with a body part that's used for sex or really any body part, it's just kind of inherently funny. So I just have to get that out of the way so that I don't laugh at any part in the podcast. I mean, if you, I have a sacred relationship to my ear, you know, um, it's just kind of a funny turn of phrase. I think I'm not saying that I'm not immature. I never, I never said that I wasn't. Um, okay. So then he goes through in the, in the introduction and like all of his introductions in the book, he lays his groundwork. Um, so he compares the anus to eroticism and black cultural, uh, formation, right. And, and this, and, and what I mean here is that he compares it to the, um, the, well, when we're ignoring a certain type of eroticism, when we're ignoring a certain type of black cultural formation, you could say the exclusion of the anus, specifically the black male anus, that orifice, is uh, what part of black culture is formed around. Um, and yeah, so ultimately he's trying to localize this interior uh, in the anus. This is, this is, um, the what I like about it is, it is bold, it is provocative, it can even be um, funny, you know, if you choose to be immature. Um, but it is, I like that it is bold. I like that it is provocative. I like that it does, like, directly attach it. It doesn't, like, tiptoe, uh, for lack of a better term, maybe this is the right one, pussyfoot around about it. He's saying, literally, you're ignoring um, gay black men, and you're ignoring any kind of homoeroticism that's happened, and you're ignoring the anus, and that is cutting you off from a... Uh, interior life and a cultural formation that could have been had otherwise. Uh, as always, and I said this throughout the book, I think his best work is when he talks about homosexuality. I think it's the most compelling and I think it's the most 
interesting. The hunger stuff, I think, in this chapter, it does come out and it's pretty good. It's like the metaphor seems to make more sense than it usually does. But I still just argue that in general, just a straightforward um, presentation of the the ideas without the hunger and just more talking about um, homosexuality would have been like if it was called the delectable Negro and it was just about um, specifically homosexuality um, and there was like zero cannibalism whatsoever. And it was just the male bodies as sexual consumption uh, instead of any kind of the literal consumption. I feel like it would have just been a little bit more um, focused and better, but I guess that's, I guess that's for the end of this chapter. So just take everything I just said there now and move it to the end of this, um, podcast in your mind. Okay. And the last part of this chapter that's important, or excuse me, this introduction that's important is that Woodard draws a distinction between homosexuality and slavery and homosexuality now. And one of his big things, he's going to talk about a lot of thinkers. We're not going to get to them all, but among them, Charles Nero, uh, Alice Walker, Toni Morrison is prominently featured. Her novel Beloved is featured. Uh, we'll get to that in a moment. And many other writers. And whether he agrees or disagrees with the writers, the one thing that he says that they don't do is do a good job of differentiating between um, uh, homosexuality, homosexuality now and homosexuality then, and that there needs to be more historical specificity um, when we're discussing these things. And that is how he gets to the, uh, the idea of hunger, all right? So um, we'll try to come back around to that in just a second. Um, but I guess I should say now that, yeah, his point there is that well, no, we're going to get to it right now. So the next section in this chapter is called the Rape Hunger Dialectic. And I think the, the basic premise of this section is that rape has overshadowed um, any talk of homoeroticism. And it's done so because the specifics, the historical specificity required to talk about rape... Uh, in slavery times, and when we talk about any kind of rape right now, we're talking about uh, homosexual rape, mainly male on male. Um, the the um, we we we've not been using the specificity necessary to talk about uh, rape of that order at that time, so. He talks about not just, I mean, you know, usually nobody has anything negative whatsoever to say against Toni Morrison, but he points out that female writers in particular are preoccupied with rape and with homosexual rape as the biggest violation. This is something that Charles Nero also talks about. And in this, in the, so then they go in and talk about the scene from Beloved in which there's a chain gang and uh, everybody um, is told to get down on their knees and basically, they're going to uh, blow the overseers. I guess you should have a, perform oral sex. I guess you should use more formal language. Well, I'm not a scholar. It's a podcast. Uh, they're going to blow the overseers or get their heads blown off. And um, the the criticism of this was that, uh, and, and later on in the book, it's mentioned, Morrison mentions that, like, there were those at, I can't remember the name of the ranch right now. Also, I read Beloved. I don't remember this part. Um at all. I remember other parts about the men, but I don't remember this part. So wonder what that says. But anyway, something for the psychoanalyst. Um, 
the 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 critique here is that Morrison later on also talks about how there are men there, but they would yeah they would instead of you know performing um, homosexual acts with other men, they would uh, masturbate or uh, have sex with animals. And the whole point here is that this is you know absurdly offensive and homophobic because it's basically saying I'd rather fuck an animal than perform a homosexual act and it doesn't take into account all of the different factors going into it and all of that. Uh th- this I mean this would take a, a, an incredible amount of parsing and Woodard doesn't go into it as much, but I imagine that one of the things that has to be said is that um you know a person's inclination beforehand, right? Like you're not just the absence of women doesn't mean that you're going to, I mean, I guess if you can't have sex for your entire life, well then yeah, that would change some things. But if you're not homosexual, I don't, I don't know that you can't, that you can just become homosexual. And I guess obviously the obvious thing that people will point to is prison. I don't have those numbers. I don't know how prevalent that is, but all that to say that masturbation would be an obvious, I feel like the more obvious thing would be masturbation and then just losing my mind and going and trying to have sex with a woman. If I were, you know, not completely heterosexual, because I guess nobody is, but like mostly heterosexual, I don't know, whatever. Um, but yeah, the sex with animals thing is completely wild. I mean, I don't, that's so far away from what I could even imagine. And obviously I'm just doing a thought experiment, but like, my thought experiment is, all right, I'm heterosexual. I can't get a woman. I would masturbate. I can't get a woman. I would, I mean, like, it's, I'm going to die if I try to escape to go get a woman. I, I feel like I, I probably just die trying. I don't know. I have no idea. Um, and then, yeah, I can't get a woman and, you know, I'm never going to be able to get a woman. All right. You know, I guess it just seems weird to say, all right, yeah, I guess I'll try the homosexuality thing. Cause that's like not how I thought uh, we were supposed to think about homosexuality, but that presupposes that you 100% have to be, um, born gay. And as I recently learned on an episode of radio lab, that entire idea that we were taught growing up, or at least like it was echoed a lot growing up is not necessarily true. And I always thought that was just 100%, 100%, 100% true. So Anyway, all of that to say that maybe if you were, um, check out that episode of Radio Lab, by the way, that's not, that's not me like saying, I, I assume that it was 100% born this way, but anyway, um, that appears to not be the case according to the, to the science. But so if I were on a plantation and, um, and, and my first choice was, <laughs> was taken, I guess, yeah, I don't know. It's an impossible thought experiment. But no matter what Charles Nero and Woodard are right, uh, you wouldn't be fucking animals, right? Um, yeah, that, and then it makes me think about that. <laughs> How wild it is when you do, do hear about like people in rural areas. I'm not saying that this happens in every rural area, but there was famously that politician who said it on uh, the radio like 15 years back. Um, it's crazy to think that people would do it. I mean, that's nuts. <sighs> anyway, a lot to parse there is the point. The overall point is that um, Morrison's claim uh, has some homophobia in it. 
and uh, Nero and Woodard suggest that, um, you know, sexuality was more complex than it's portrayed in that section of Beloved. And then there's the concept of why this is the case. Why is homosexuality viewed as such a violation? And the breakfast, as it's called, because when they're on the chain gang and they're forced to uh, kneel and uh, give the overseers oral sex, it's called uh, the breakfast. And that's also where the title of this chapter comes from, The Hungry Inward. You thought I was going to say it again. Told you I wasn't going to say it again. The Hungry Inward, that's where the title of this chapter comes from. And Woodard poses the question, like, can you even make a heroic noble man from somebody who uh, is involved in the breakfast scenario? And I think that's a worthwhile question. I think that the demeaning of the black man in these scenarios, and we're talking specifically about black man rape, black male rape. I'm not um, erasing. This is not a ratio of black women being raped. Specifically, Woodard's talking about this because we never talk about it. So um, in scenarios like this that are described by Morrison, uh, it feels impossible for there to be um, any kind of heroism or noble act from such a man. And, and, um, what we're trying to create is a heroic black man in our literature. And if that's not a violation, if they're not disgusted by this, which they should be a trait, but you, overall homosexuality, right? Because then it just gets lumped in with everything else. So if it's not viewed as this violation, and it's tied to these original demeaning acts, right? Uh, then how can we be creating heroic noble characters? Um, so there you go. That's kind of that section. And then finally, uh, from this chapter, it ends with this little quote, quote here from Woodard, which kind of reinforces some of what I was saying. He says, but what Morrison does mainly through the public staging of black male hunger, this is where, on the chain gang, he's asked, are you, are you guys hungry? And, uh, but, you know, are you hungry and word like that? And he says, yes, boss, we're hungry. You know? Uh, so, but what Morrison does mainly through the public staging of black male hunger is hint at the range of interpretive implications of black male hunger with hunger serving as metonymy for needing, wanting, being made to taste, lack, and the taboo desire to be filled. So that's the tie in there where the homosexual act uh, becomes um, tied to hunger and it was made to be tied to hunger. So that separates it from the voluntary homosexual act of later times. And I think this is the the point of that historical specificity that Woodard spoke of earlier that's lacking when Nero and others rightfully critique Morrison but don't point out the difference between our present times and then. It's one thing that Morrison may have accidentally got right. And then that way it's not different than last week with uh, William Styron accidentally painting a apt picture of America through his version of Nat Turner. I am more willing to give the benefit of the doubt 
to Toni Morrison <laughs> for many reasons uh, than William Steyer. All right. Um, and then after that, I mean, I think, you know, there's a couple more sections. I'm going to go through these faster. I thought the first two sections were the most interesting to me. The next section is called Theorizing the Black Male Orifice. Uh, so I'm just going to read some main points that I wrote down here. I have three. The first, uh, this is a summary. The organizing principle of Afro-America is the phallus vagina construct, but no one has discussed the male orifices. So... It's always the dominating phallus, the, uh, the, the taken advantage of vagina. I don't have a good word for that. Um, but it's never like, you know, it's never ever about the, the male anus. Now with any of this, that's in this chapter, it's kind of difficult because you can think to yourself, well, is that true in white culture? You know, uh, we're not the only culture who's ignoring it. I guess the pushback from Woodard and others would be, right, but there is more acceptance. And the reason that there's less acceptance in the black community is specifically because of the, um, well, all of the reasons, all of everything we just covered in the first half of this podcast, which is that uh, there's this tie to the idea of homosexuality and violation dating back to slavery, not that it didn't happen, uh, but... Um, but that's the only way we view it. And that's kind of one of the, I guess I should have brought that up too. That's one of Nero's critiques as well. And one of his points about why, you know, like that Morrison passage is so homophobic. You're saying that these guys would rather lay with animals than each other. And we only view sex with men in slavery times as rape instead of, you know, just two dudes. Uh, so um, that sounded romantic. Two dudes. Anyway. All right, so that's the first section, Sec or the first point. Second point, Woodard ties the incest represented in black literature as a reaction to the cloistered aspects of slavery. And so here he is talking about uh, the tight place, which is how uh, an act of incest is described in, uh, I believe it's The Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, and how um, his, his, uh, this father rapes his daughter and, you know, it says he was in a, it, it's, it's referred to as the tight place. And then, um, this, there's another passage, I think it's in an Alice Walker novel or no, it's a, maybe it's a Toni Morris novel where she talks about the idea of the phallus being intrusive. So rather than it, you know, this idea of like this, oh, this hard decision of like, uh, should I, or shouldn't I? rape my daughter and commit incest um it's actually more like th the phallus is at fault rather than the decision leading the phallus astray this kind of thing um so he connects that dot and then from there we extrapolate into the idea that the tight place could be instead of right this uh, violated vagina it could be um the anus right and uh, instead of thinking it as of an emptiness, which uh, he quotes a thinker who talks about black history being emptiness, instead of thinking it, thinking of it as an emptiness, we could think of it as uh, something else. And so he suggests on page um, 225 that... To counter the, space, the spatial logic of the tight place as emptiness, void, chasm, and vacuum, 
we might begin to think in a more concrete manner about the correlation between the geospatial places and the interior space of the eroticized male mouth and anus. Uh, we already have precedents for this way of thinking. With example of Washington, we have the erogenous oral region coinciding with reconstructionary claims to tilled and har harvested land, to postbellum sites of slavery, and to a sense of southern homeland sought after by emancipated slaves. It's a lot to connect the, um, I think, personally, I think it's a difficult idea to keep in your head the correlation between actual geospatial places and the interior space of the eroticized male mouth and anus. I just think that that's a difficult thing to do. But uh, that is, I think, the sequencing as best I can do it in that section. So just to recap there, we go from the vagina phallus construct. We then move into incest rape in black literature and how it is described from male and female perspectives. And then using that one of those perspectives, the tight place, we then uh, attempt to now deconstruct or just um, replace for a moment the male or the phallus vagina construct and instead think of the tight place as the anus and not think of it as emptiness but connected to geospatial places. I, I just would say that that's a very difficult concept in general. Um, so there you go. And then the next section is called the black male sodomite. Um, this I think is a good point here. Uh, Woodard talks about the fact that the anus should be thought of as a communal space between two black men. And I thought that was interesting because rather than just think of the gay man alone, outcast and not accepted by his community, instead think of two gay men who could possibly uh, build their lives and their families in the community and be accepted. And that's often not the way that they're thought of. And then so he goes back and gives some evidence of uh, some sexual, um, non-traditional sexual roles. And I'm going to not use the word Western here, even though he uses the word Western. And I'll, I'll get to why I'm not going to use the word Western in, in just one second. Um, because I'm going to read the quote. Uh, he, oh, he talks about the sentencing of Congo and Creole. These were two young men who were relatively close in age, but I believe Congo was uh, convicted of raping Creole. They were both sentenced to death. And um, that part is obviously tragic and terrible. But the, the salient point of this is that uh, they were two, well, at least one, um, gay black men just trying to, you know, have sex. And that is evidence for gay, you know, relationships. Uh, and then he goes on here to talk about um, other instances of this happening. He mentions that there were laws, there was a separate law by the Quakers for, um, so he says, uh, the sentencing of Congo and Creole occurred approximately 50 years before the Black Sodomy Act of the Quakers was passed. The Quakers felt the need to craft separate sodomy laws for blacks as there were probably occurrences of sodomy among blacks prior to 1706. I think that's great um, de deductive reasoning. And I think that a lot of the book focuses on the idea that we should go back and reread things and read them with the lens of like, oh, there's um, there's the possibility that like this was meant this way and that was meant that way. But I, I really think that something like this is much more convincing. Like, oh, they had to pass an act about sodomy. That means sodomy was going on. Boom. I mean, that's better than me reading like the Frederick Douglass passage that I read back in the first or second chapter and going like, oh, yeah, he could have meant it this way. Like, 
I don't think he meant it that way. I don't even really care. I mean, I definitely don't care, but like, I just don't think he meant it that way. So, but this, this is me reading this going like, oh yeah, hundred percent. There was sodomy going on, you know, it makes more sense. So I thought there's a lot of good evidence in this chapter. And then some, but my only critique here is that some of the evidence gets a little bit mixed up because he starts talking about roles in traditional African societies that are not gender specific. Like there would be people who are thought to have been possessed by a, a female spirit. And so they would get to dress up like a woman. And sometimes uh, depending on the, the culture, they might perform sex acts with married couples and things like that. But then it's getting into like a weird space because gender and sexuality and all of that, it's not exactly what he was talking about. I didn't think, you know, because I think obviously that uh, the gender and sexuality conversation are two different conversations. At least that's what I've been led to believe, right? That's what I've been taught. So if that's not the case, I, I stand corrected, but um, I'm pretty certain that that's the case. And obviously they're connected in some ways that at the very least, like the communities have dialogue with each other. So that's something. But I thought that it wasn't the strongest evidence. I also think that those those ideas cherry pick a little bit. Um, and that's why I don't like to use the term Western here. I'm sure that there were uh, communities in Europe that weren't, um, you know, adhering to quote unquote Western principles. And so really it's the, it's, it's Christianity and other, you know, Abrahamic religions that, that impose their worldview on pagans of all stripes, right? So quote unquote pagans. Um, so I don't really think that necessarily has to do with Western and non-Western. There's also, there's just also the trouble of what does Western mean? Because the African is certainly not Eastern, but he's certainly not Western. And what about, uh, you know, Turkey, right? I guess they're, they're like, what about the Middle East in general? Is the Middle East Eastern, Western, its own thing? It's the Middle East. Uh, Africa's the West or it's the East. What about South America? What What's Guatemala? You know, like, I guess it's the West, but I think really when we say the West, we mean the, um, the, the ruling powers that have shaped the last several centuries. And that's only really a few countries, you know? So... It just seems odd to be like, oh, yeah, Western when it's like geographically hundreds of countries, but really, truly like a few countries. And then to say Africa is not Western seems odd. So I just don't like that term Western. I also don't like the idea that like because we can point to a few communities where they had um, some non-traditional gender roles that that is like evidence that there was more fluidity in Africa than previously thought. It's a really big continent. A few places isn't enough to satiate that idea in my head, um, to satisfy that idea in my head, not satiate. So that's my only critique of that. And then, um, yeah, I want to end here. Oh, there's one more section. Oh, okay. So I'll go back and, and with my lighthearted note. Uh, and then, okay, the last section is called the anus and diasporic context. Um, yeah, so this has a lot to do with the idea that, like, slavery created homosexual black men. He quotes a Cuban writer who basically 
claims as much. He says, like, older Africans who came over and saw effeminate um, black men were like, oh, what the hell, we weren't like this in Africa. Which is also, um, you know, also probably not true, but, like, maybe. I have no idea. Uh, it's probably, like, at least a little bit true, right? Um but it's definitely not true that there were no gay people in Africa, so we know that that's bullshit. So Woodard points out, and it's you know most likely true that if you see, it's it's the reaction, right? If you see that you come over and you see that um, black people are being demeaned and treated as uh, property, and then you see some that have um, quote unquote turned gay then you're like, oh, yeah, that's the connection. You've been treated like property, and now the white man has stripped you of your masculinity, and now you're gay. Um, so, yeah, it makes sense why they would have... Well, it doesn't make sense, but, you know, or, or that... that uh, It makes sense in the sense that we have seen that leap in logic happen for, like, two centuries since emancipation or whatever, 150 years. So, 150-plus years. So, um, there you go. But then, yeah, okay, my last little point here is that uh, Woodard says, and this is almost, what, four pages before the book ends, or three pages before the book ends, this pattern European response to differing African codes of gender and sexuality conveys how crucial the management of African bodies and erotic desires was to, cons to the consolidation of European imperial power in the Americas. I... This, so this is what I was kind of pushing back on just a minute ago. Uh, I, the patterned European response to different African codes of gender and sexuality makes it, sounds, makes it sound like no Africans would have had this um, response. And perhaps some of them would. And I, I, I'm very curious about that. I wonder if there were African societies uh, that encountered other African societies who had um, differing codes of gender and sexuality. And they were like, no, 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 definitely. We're not with that. Um, my, my guess is yes, because I think that that's just as much a phenomenon, right? Like if, if one of the phenomenons is that a lot of cultures have had homosexuality and gender fluid roles in them, another phenomenon it would follow would be that there's always been cultures that are like rabidly against it and really weird about it. And so I just think it's odd to say that, like, uh, until the European showed up, um, nobody else looked at this behavior and thought, oh, no, right? Like, I'm sure some African society would have looked at that behavior and gone, oh, no, just as other African societies would have looked at other behavior and gone, oh, no. My point just being that the prejudice would exist regardless, not that it should exist. Um, and I also think that I, w I just would be more interested in like when, um, rather than calling it a European response, uh, more of calling it like a capitalistic response, because I think the management of bodies has more to do with, um, commerce than culture, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm being overly semantical arguing for no reason. That's possible. 
Okay, we end on a light note and then just quickly my overall thoughts. The light note is not truly a light note. This is a book about black people being eaten and consumed by slavery. So we, we take what we can get. But uh, discussing some characters from the last, not characters, historical people from the last chapter in the book, um, he says, someone such as Mingo, alias Cock Negro, had a suggestive African first name and was executed for, quote-unquote, forcible buggery. Folks, the man's name was Cock Negro. Now, I don't really think I need to say anything else. A fantastic name. Uh, very well done. 10 out of 10, no notes. Um, wish he wouldn't have been forcibly killed for buggery. Wish he wouldn't have been stolen from his homeland. Should have never had the alias. That being said, uh, if it wouldn't have been a name that was given to him by white people, uh, it would be a great name for video gaming or something. Or I guess porn. Uh, okay, overall, the book. Um, yeah, I think I've given my thoughts throughout. I don't think I need to go into it too deeply. I wish it was a bit more focused on uh, homosexuality. I think that would have made the focus of the book better altogether. I think the hunger aspect was not as important or if it was going to be included it should have only been included in the context of sexual consumption i think any of the physical acts of hunger could have been greatly reduced in terms of their importance there could have been a lot less dwelling on it and there could have been even more presentation about homoeroticism its relationship to hunger the desire for the black body to be sexually consumed i think there's a lot of um meat on the bone there so once again not not intentional uh okay that's gonna do it uh i've done enough on this book uh, overall i would say though very difficult read for different reasons than like fred moten was a difficult read but still a very difficult read and uh, mainly because i just thought the first couple of chapters weren't as as strong but the last couple of chapters made up for it but anyway that's it. That's the delectable, delectable Negro. Uh, next week, I'll be reading a work of fiction and from an indie author. So tune in for that. That'll be next week. And yeah, the week after that, I have already recorded the podcast. And it's a old work of fiction from a black author who passed away. But the book was written in the 1970s. So we have a modern work of fiction next week. On October 12th, that'll come out, uh, indie author. Um, and then October 19th, a old piece of fiction from a deceased author. So kind of, oh, and also Vincent Woodard, uh, he also passed away. But but this is a modern book. So three different books in a row, right? We had nonfiction with a relatively modern author, then a piece of indie fiction with a living author, and then a after that, a piece of older fiction. And then after that, we'll go back to the two weeks. Um, I just felt that because I'd taken so long to get to this book, I wanted to soldier through and get weeks uh, or chapters um, five and six done in consecutive weeks. And then I that had pushed back my schedule for the indie book. So um, we're motoring along. We're pushing everything forward. We're getting there, and then we will, yeah, have an episode tomorrow, uh, October 5th, that's today, October 12th, October 19th, and then after that, um, the next episode will be in November, and then will be two weeks as we go every time after that. If you 
are an indie author and you hear this podcast, send me a book. I'll read your book. Uh, if you are not an indie author and you are listening to this podcast and you know an indie author or just a book in general, you have an idea for a comment somewhere on the podcast, on the YouTube video somewhere, send me a comment on my website. You can find it all in the show notes uh, and I will read the book. Um, the oh, the last thing before we read the credits is last week uh, we were talking about slave revolts and I was talking about successful ones. And I said Nat Turner's slave revolt was the only successful one. And my friend Zachary Ober out of uh, Hangzhou, China, Hangzhou, Zhongguo, uh, he said um, uh, the Louisiana Slave Rebellion of 1811. So shout out to Zach for that. And I'm and I'll have to look into the others that are that exist. But uh, okay, please rate review the podcast um, on iTunes, Spotify. I use Pocket Casts. We're on YouTube. Check out Instagram. We're on TikTok. We don't really use it. Um, the music's by the Keep Runnings in the show notes. If you want to read a book that I wrote, that's in the show notes. Also, that's just nice to support your local podcaster and yeah that's gonna do it so until next time stay safe stay black and keep reading this time enough at last that's not fair that's not fair at all there was time now. There was was all the time I needed. That's not fair. <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs>